disgusting weather outside today. I got a squeaky pair of walking boots. I bought these a while ago and then I put them in the cupboard because they weren't particularly waterproof. That was my recollection. Anyway, I'm now thinking, maybe I misremembered. Maybe actually they're brilliantly waterproof. So I'm gonna go out and see how I get on. It's a good story though, isn't it? <laughs> Did you hear about Adam Buxton's walking boots? He's not sure if they're waterproof. He put them away in his cupboard years ago. Now, where's Dog? Usually she is ready for action as soon as she hears any boot noise. Rosie! Maybe she's looking out the window thinking, I'm not going out in that, mate. Hey, hey, hey. Hello. That is the snuffling sound of a dog. What do you think, Rose? Come on, then, dog. I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how are you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here. Erg, it's grim out here in the Norfolk countryside. Grey and rainy and windy. Rosie is facing off with a big cow. There is actually a gap in the fence there. The cow could actually just push through quite easily. It might even be a bull. It's really big and would just squash the absolute living shit out of me and Rosie if it wanted to. But it seems to be content having a little bit of a grass munch. So let's avoid that field, Rose, and we'll go up this track here instead. Yep, you're getting all the important news today, podcats. Boot situation... Which, let me tell you, is currently okay, although I haven't had to wade through any puddles. So I don't know how waterproof these boots are. I can tell you they're quite comfortable. I'm wearing big, thick socks today. It's first day of big, thick sock weather in 2020. So my feet are currently cosy. But how cosy are your feet, Buckles? Everyone's going on about the American elections and the pandemic and the possible second lockdown coming this week. But screw all that. How cosy are your feet? Don't worry. They're pretty cosy. I'm amusing myself thinking about my cosy feet. All right, listen, come on, refocus. Let me tell you a bit about my guest for podcast number 137, who is... The British comedian, ventriloquist, actor, and director, Nina Conti. It's windy and cold. Nina Fax. Performing is in Nina's DNA. (laughs) 
That's a good sentence, Buckles. Well done. Her parents are the actors Cara Wilson and Tom Conti. Nina herself was at the RSC. That's the Royal Shakespeare Company. As well as training with the late Ken Campbell, a legend of British experimental theatre who was instrumental in encouraging Nina to pursue ventriloquism, as you will hear. In 2008, Nina won the prestigious Barry Award at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival for her solo show, Complete and Utter Conti. I mean, these are just selected highlights from her career that I'm giving you, some of these from Nina's website. Link in the description of the podcast, along with a few other videos of Nina in action. In 2010, Nina's show, Talk to the Hand, had sellout seasons in Edinburgh, London, Melbourne, the Sydney Opera House and New York. The documentary film that Nina directed, entitled Her Master's Voice, was released in 2012 and received a prestigious Grierson Documentary Award the following year. Nina's film showed her travelling to Kentucky in the US to visit a kind of retirement home for the ventriloquist dummies of entertainers who have died. She travelled with her closest puppet companions, Monkey, Granny, and a variety of other puppets left to her after the death in 2008 of her mentor, Ken Campbell. My conversation with Nina was recorded remotely in the middle of September this year. That's 2020, in case you're listening in the future. When Nina was in the process of writing a book and we began our conversation by exchanging notes on writing books about your real life. I'll be back at the end for a little bit more waffle, not too much because I am freezing and uh, wet, except for my feet, which are still cosy but right now with Nina Conti here we go I was going to ask you what your book was about. Well, it's um, it's kind of like an autobiography written in two voices, mine and monkeys. And uh, his is a far more interesting voice to write in and actually seems to have insight from a, whatever corner of my brain he sits in and has perspective from is much better than if I'm going to go and sit and then you end up with a kind of rubbish diary. So I have to kind of sit and channel him for a minute, you know, when it's getting all girly and diaryish. I have to go, wait, let him in, and then I let the monkey's voice take over. So a lot of stretches of the writing. It feels like I'm I'm like in a hurry to tell someone everything as they're walking away. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I think that person who's walking away is me. I'm just going to get it down before I walk away. But the monkey's voice is much calmer I want to write in, so that's kind of that's the idea of the thing. It's very handy to have that other commentary voice there yeah very i completed 
a book, a sort of semi-memoirish book that took me a very long time to write because I found it so hard. And one of the things that I wanted to do was have people comment on what I was writing as I went along. And my wife did it a little bit. So I would read her things or tell her what I was writing about. And then I would transcribe some of her comments or she would email me. And I included a couple of those. Right. The other good thing about that, of course, is that it puts the word count up, which is nice. Uh, yeah, that's But lovely. I didn't actually, I didn't get as much of her in there as I wanted. And I also wanted Joe Cornish, my comedy wife, to commentate. And I, I invited him to. But in the end, he only sent back like three notes one of which was, maybe you shouldn't tell that story, we look like dicks. And then the main note, the only one that I included was, why do you and Louis Theroux write about me in your books and use the word haughty? Can't you think of a better word? That was Joe saying that. Yeah, because Louis and myself were at school with Joe and um, we both ended up describing him as haughty. And he was haughty about it. He thought it was unimaginative, but he really was haughty. Yeah. Yeah, he was massively haughty. How did you deal with the dilemmas, of the him aside, of looking after everybody whilst writing the stories that you were going to tell? Was it easy? No, I worried about it a lot. I mean, I worried about the whole process. I mean, I think the main thing is that you make yourself the butt of any uncomfortable stories, don't you? And um, yeah. It's not an opportunity to settle scores, really, is it? Yeah, it's not a vendetta. It can't be. Well, I mean, I think as you go on, the longer you go on, the le- any anger kind of cools and you get over it anyway. I found yeah. and thought, oh, don't be such a bitch. It's fine. You know, you understand. So probably six different Ninas of the future are going to edit all the vendetta out of it. Have you ever read a really bitter autobiography? No, but I wouldn't mind. I read an autobiography recently by the drummer of Talking Heads, Chris France, and it's called Remain in Love. It's a lot about his relationship with Tina Weymouth, who played bass in Talking Heads and was and still is his wife. And he clearly loves her very much. And he goes on and on about how much he loves Tina and how great looking she is and how much passionate sex they have on a regular basis. And Oh, no. Yeah. And they'll be oh, <laughs> sometimes he goes into a story about like um, he's in Barbados or somewhere like that or Antigua. I don't know, some uh, Caribbean island. And he stood there with a friend and he's saying, we saw suddenly we saw this beautiful woman approaching from down the far end of the beach. Wow, she's incredible looking, we said to each other. And so it's this big, long story about they've seen a sexy woman and they're ogling her. And you're thinking, where's this going? And then you realize, oh, I know where it's going. And the punchline is, and then I realized it was Tina, my (laughs) wife. Oh, my goodness. She's beautiful. (laughs) And my friend likes her, too. I mean, that's all sort of charming in its own way. I don't mind that. But he really makes his dislike of David Byrne, the lead singer of Talking Heads, Uh quite plain and just doesn't really miss an opportunity to tell a story that makes him look bad. And it really kind of leaves a bad taste in the mouth. It seems petty. It seems that you haven't moved on. How are you handling it then? The whole not throwing people under the bus thing? Well, at the moment, and this draft is under the bus completely, and I'll work out how to get them out of there next time. Okay. But I don't think I can worry too much on a first draft because it's just too hampering. 
If you're worrying all the time, like I do, I mean, I agonize after every conversation, have shame attacks every day. I've got to just not worry about it and imagine no one will see this one. I think most of which they won't. I'll sort it later. The most fun (laughs) is writing about people who are no longer alive, because obviously the stakes are a lot lower in that respect. Like you Mm. You can be a bit more honest. So when I was writing about my dad... I was able to say things that I certainly would not have felt comfortable saying when he was alive, probably. And I had to be careful, like, thinking, well, you know, I don't want to just totally throw him under the bus and trash him at all. But um, it is a bit easier when they're dead. You can be a little more relaxed, can't you? Yeah, well, you know, mine aren't dead, so I've got to... I've got to be careful, but the, the, the thing is it cools because I can get sort of worked up. And they're nice people, fundamentally, and I understand them and love them and I'm grateful. You know, all that is true. Um, but if I get irritated, the next day reading it, like you say, is unseemly and you think, oh, give it a rest, get over it, and write something that we're interested in. <laughs> and it's very hard when you're writing about your own life to ever... to The who gives a shit voices in there all the time it's so hard to get away from that yes even like what you think are your best stories you think yeah but who cares (laughs) so but anyway i'm not really selling it right now am i i mean no listen i i uh, sympathize completely i went through exactly that crisis of confidence when i was trying Mm. to put it together and i'm sure you'll get through it and you have to remember that people do care. People who are into your stuff really care. And if you are able to tell that story with any yeah. degree of candor and humor and humanity, then other people will discover it and other people will humor care truth, as well. You yeah. know, at this point, I feel as if I haven't properly said hello. No, we haven't really. So hello. Hello, Nina. Hello, Adam. Thank you so much for doing this. It's a pleasure. And look at this background on this Zoom conversation we're having. It looks like I'm in a little bleak Eastern European bedsit. It does a bit. Isn't it grim where I'm sitting? <laughs> it's so, yeah. It's not, it's not a room I usually use. I've got to dress up my background. <laughs> Nina is in what appears to be a Spartan white room with just a bed with a grey bedspread up against the wall <laughs> and, no, and no furniture in the room other than that. It's like that Tom Hanks hotel when he cries in big and oh, it's not quite that bad, is it? <laughs> when he's in New York, really yeah, cool. and his and him and his mate have a good time and then his yeah. mate says, all right, I'm going to go home now and then he's just all on his own and he can hear people being murdered and gunshots and people shouting at each other. <laughs> it's such a great scene. That's exactly what being an adult is like, isn't it? Don't you reckon? Like It's how it feels. Abandoned and exiled. <laughs> and how are you doing at the moment? Have you been, presumably you haven't been traveling anywhere. The last time I saw you, you'd just been in America doing s- sort of scary sounding talent shows. Is I did a right? talent show, yeah. With all my dignity, I went and did a talent show in front of a jury. Um, I think how I am now is probably quite good, um, but it's quite different, obviously, because. Our industry just, I mean, most of my work has been live. My dependable income has been live shows. And with that just being gone overnight, you just have to adapt and wonder, okay, so if that never happened again, 
will I be okay with it? And initially I was really not okay. And I'm not, I wouldn't really be okay with it. But I'm, I'm, I actually feel quite calm from not working. It's quite nice from not doing the live shows. But to witter on and completely contradict myself, I just did a gig and I absolutely loved it. So I don't know. It's both things are true. Will you remind me what the talent show thing was? Because I was talking to you about it at a Christmas party and then I think we got separated or something, but I wanted to hear, it sounded enjoyably uncomfortable and I wanted to hear more gory details. (laughs) Yeah, well, I did it. I went to do it at a point where things were going very well and I thought, well, I, I don't know. In America, I'm not really that known. So I managed to establish that this show was only going out in America. No one here would know that I had done it. And then it turned out to be a much bigger deal than I realised with James Corden hosting and RuPaul and True Barrymore, Faith Hill were the judges. Oh, my judges. God, what was it called? It was called The World's Best. And um, they butter you up a bit saying, like, this is the, you already have to be the best to be in this talent show. But that's bullshit. Because if you really are the best, you're still not going to do a talent show. Anyway, so all us (laughs) best people turned up needy and worried. Um, And it was a really, it was a really big deal. It was going out after the Super Bowl and there were going to be just millions of people watching it. And... um, but I turned out not to be in that first episode, so I missed that massive audience. And then the figures just fell and nobody really watched it in the end. But at the time, it was very frightening because just standing behind that little curtain, I'm going to do my five minutes of material or whatever it is. Oh, just to be sent home in round one would have been so mortifying. But I made it to the final and then I lost to a, a Korean martial arts troupe in the final. Fair enough. Yeah, and a, and a prodigy... Uh, pianist from India he was about 11 and he can play anything not the keyboard player from the prodigy (laughs) no he's he's too good too good for it and did you come away regretting it or was it quite a good experience I don't know I got some semi-finalist money that was quite nice um I mean it was okay I think it was okay I like being in LA I had a nice enough time but it was embarrassing because I like, especially in the middle when I was a contestant, you do feel really needy. You don't get the same kind of green room as everyone else. And James Corden, who I know enough just to sort of chat to a bit, who was hosting it, like the, the difference, the, the complete difference of hierarchy between us in those little interstitial chats when they were having advert breaks. I just felt lowly as hell. He's like, oh, you're doing well. I was like, oh, God, this is so embarrassing. (laughs) Why am I? (laughs) I mean, you do, um, I don't know you very well, but you do strike me as someone who is managing a certain amount of awkwardness in social situations. And the temptation is to assume that's why you manage your interactions with your audience via characters and via the puppets. Yeah, I really definitely prefer it. There's far too much storm of vulnerability in my own face. And then I just have that monkey whose face is so solid and unchanging. You can project anything onto it and he can deliver a line with such gravitas. That's just the perfect vehicle for me. As soon as that came along, I thought, oh, thank God he can do it. It's very nice because not only is his exterior 
a lot steadier than mine. Mm-hmm. I feel like the place he speaks from in my own head is sort of deep under all the waves. It, it's quieter down there too. And I don't know where it is or what it is, or if you put me in an MRI machine, if you would see a bit like up that's monkey. I don't know how it manages to speak from somewhere a bit lower and calmer. Yeah. But it doesn't exist completely alongside the Nina that you meet in conversation. I think when people hear performers explaining things like that, they sort of think, oh, you're just pretending. Mm -hmm. You're not that nervous. You can get on stage and do it. So stop pretending that it's you're sort of magically accessing this confident part of you via the monkey. No, no, I don't believe it. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, I think the opposite of what people think. I think people are more often telling me, well, not telling me, but goading me like, but you couldn't do it yourself, could you? I'm like, no, I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, but you could do it. I mean, someone's saying you could do it. Well, maybe they think that. But, um, I mean, everybody's a bit braver behind some kind of mask, whether it's the internet or whatever it is. Um, people are more bold, so it's just an extension, really, of that stuff. I'm checking my account at the memory bank. The memory bank, the memory bank. We're thanking you for banking all your memories. I'd like to take out a happy memory thanks. The memory bank, the memory bank. Oh, I'm sorry, but you're very overdrawn. I will repay with interest when I get back up on my happy feet. The memory bank, the memory bank. I'm very sorry, but we're closing your account. My what? Where am I? The memory bank. The memory bank. We're the nice bank. Would you like to bank with us? You got out of university. You went to UAE, which is uh, this part of the world. Oh, yeah. No, UEA. UEA. Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. The, not the United Arab Emirates. That's not where <laughs> you studied. You went to uh, University of East Anglia in Norwich. And then did you come out of that? I mean, you were studying philosophy, but did you... Mm come out of that knowing that you were going to be a performer i came out of there worried what i was going to do i think i did want to try and be a performer it seemed a bit unoriginal because my parents were actors but i hadn't come up with a better idea by then but that was a tricky year i did a mini pupillage with a law firm but so much reading i couldn't imagine taking home all those files yeah, I guess I did know I wanted to be a performer, but certainly didn't know about ventriloquism. I was barely aware of its existence. You became an actor for a while, is that right? Yeah, I had a sort of chip on my shoulder because my dad got me an agent. And then, oh, you know, rubbing up against actors who have fought hard for what they've done. And I've just waltzed in and got an agent at ICM and I haven't done anything. And then I w- went up for lots of auditions and really didn't convince anyone that I was right for any roles. And so I then decided to go a different path completely and sort out Ken Campbell because it felt like that was, uh, he was a more kind of underground character and very different from my dad's world. And it just seemed like I needed a, that, a different colour and so I'd go, go that way. How did you become aware of Ken Campbell? I think it's because I was studying philosophy and I was reading reviews. I remember reading a review in the paper of his show, which blended philosophy and comedy and stuff. And I thought, oh, gosh, that sounds really interesting. So I went to see one of his live shows and I thought he was great. 
And then I had a friend who was working with him. Alan Cox was putting on his 24-hour play again, which had been done in the 70s with Jim Broadbent and everyone. It had been quite a scene. So they decided to do that again. And I turned up uh, to the rehearsals of that without a part and just sort of talked my way in. It was very clear to me that I wanted to do something different and he seemed radical enough. You know, the rehearsals were kind of all through the night, finishing at 5am, he would be sitting there with his dogs and his cigar and everyone hanging around him like a kind of cult. It was quite a scene to be a part of and very different from, I don't know, going up for adverts with the ICM agent or whatever it was I was doing. I just thought, oh, this is much more. There's something definitely that I need from this that... I should hang around and get. <laughs> You've painted a picture there that makes me think of Ken as a kind of Colonel Kurtz from Apocalypse mm. Now, the Colonel Kurtz of the experimental theatre world. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was. I mean, he was very Kurtz. He wasn't very nice. He was frightening, unapproachable and like razor sharp. And he had that ability of dressing somebody down to the core of their nature and their faults with just such a, an easy turn of phrase that it was just amazing to be around him and watch him devastate people. <laughs> it was also quite amusing, but very frightening. You didn't want it to be your turn. You probably couldn't be that kind of personality nowadays, I suppose, could you? No, he'd be in all sorts of trouble now. Yeah. Talk about an abuse of power. He made someone wear a bucket on their head, you know, things like that, or a box or something, all sorts, you know, and naked scenes that people were scared of doing, you know. <laughs> like, he'd get them naked and get them used to it. It was, like, very brutal tactics. Yeah, but the object of the exercise and the purpose of the tactics was not just to humiliate people or get some sort of pervy thrill. It was to... Uh, enable people to access a kind of vulnerability that would bring an authenticity to what they were doing, presumably. Yeah, it was to liberate people and get them out of themselves or get it, get them to celebrate the things that they're embarrassed of, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, it was to turn people on their head. And he was very liberating. He was very, definitely, for me, pushed me way further than I would have gone in a kind of normal theatre route. Were you suspicious initially, though? Did you sort of think... I think if I'd encountered someone like that, and I occasionally did when I was at art school, mm. I was always quite suspicious, and I, my natural instinct was to back off and to sort of think, I don't, I don't know if that's for me. I'd rather <laughs> people were polite. Yeah. Uh, I was... Yeah, I had um, approach avoidance about it. I wanted to stay safe. Oh, and away from him. But another part of me just went straight into the eye of the storm to get as close to him as I could be. Maybe I thought it'd be more still. If I was really close, it might be quiet in there. But it wasn't. It was a very, very full-on relationship to have in my, twenty. I don't know, mid-twenties or something. Yeah, I went right in there with Ken Campbell. And I don't really know how I had the courage. Just something told me it was the right thing to do. Because I was very bland. I was very bland and very meek kind of person. So I think that's why I needed to get up close to something much more volcanic. And he obviously saw something in you, though. How soon after you got to know him did you start a relationship with him? Romantic relationship? 
uh, quite a while about <laughs> it's funny still makes me giggle like an idiot to think yeah I did have that um I was I was in his kind of vicinity for about a year or more mm-hmm. before in his theatre group. It took a while to get the courage. I mean, I know, did manage to kind of become his favourite because he would shout at people, but he didn't shout at me. You know, I remember walking past me when we were all eating lunch once saying, you know, I, was, I do lose my temper, but I do have my favourites and sort of giving me a smile. And I was like, oh, thank God. Oh, thank God. That's another relationship, though, which would probably be... I guess it's getting more unusual in the modern age, though, because there was such a large gap between you age-wise. He was nearly Mm -hmm. 60 or something when you were 26. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, I was speaking to someone on this podcast, Mona Chalabi, and she is quite a bit younger than I am. And and we were talking about relationships where there's a big age gap. My mum was quite a bit younger than my dad, come to think of it. Right. Anyway, she was saying that she she was quite disapproving and I think her disapproval came from a sort of fairly modern sense of uh, there being an imbalance of power dynamics. Yeah. Did you feel any of that at the time or were people saying things like that to you? Um, well, everybody was raising their eyebrows for sure and I was raising my own um but uh yeah I guess I didn't have to do that (laughs) I mean I do I did seek it out though I mean I did seek it out and but it's very you could call it an abuse of power whatever I mean it's really tricky because I can only speak for my own story here and I don't want to cast an opinion about similar stories at all or even call them similar because I'm talking about me and Ken Campbell and like you say you know I was like I say I mean I was quite bland looking for some guidance and I found him fascinating and a genius and I sort of decided I was in love with his mind and bodies don't matter and you know lucky to be on the planet at the same time and let's just go let's just go there let's go all the way you know let's be brave I mean, it's not even brave, is it? God knows. I don't know. I I also have rationalised it like really not a big deal. If I look back from today's standpoint, I can go, yeah, that's a bit off. That wouldn't that wouldn't wash now. But it's so different back then, and I was so different. I can't. I don't know. Seems a shame to bring that frame to it. Yeah. It would be a terrible thing to kind of lose that part of my history as well. You know, by looking at it as a trauma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not to say it wasn't traumatic, though. It was deeply traumatic. But it's my life. What the fuck can I do about it? You know, I'm okay about it. But relationships are always traumatic. I don't care if there's total balance of power. There's always going to be some imbalance in there somewhere. I mean, deeply traumatising for him, probably. Far more traumatising for him when I said, oh, I don't, you know, I'm leaving now. Awful. He's <laughs> devastated. I don't know who's who's more damaged by it all. <laughs> Both equally, I think. Your parents never sat you down and said, now look, young lady. No. What, like, calm down? I don't know. My, I remember I went out with someone... For a while, who was about 10 years older than I was. And I was, um, but I was younger than you. Like, so you're 26, you know, at 26, I think you can 
pretty much figure things out. Yeah. But I was only just 18 and I started going out with someone who was 10 years older than I was. And my parents were quite alarmed by that. Mm. I think they just felt like at 18, you should still be hanging out with people your own age and having being stupid and an 18-year-old. You shouldn't be suddenly in the world of someone in their late 20s. You know, you can come to that when you come to it sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I could definitely kept it a secret from my dad because I th- think he definitely would have been a bit upset. As it was, you were sort of grateful because Ken Campbell ended up steering me towards my whole career. So he, he wrote him a letter latterly and said, you know, thank you for everything you've done for Nina. But I kept that secret from him. My mum, on the other hand, is an absolute flagrant uh, horn dog. <laughs> and very... <laughs> she's just excitable with any story, you know. Oh, tell me. Oh, you know. Oh, wonder. Oh, he's old. Is he? Oh, good. Oh, tell me more. She's... Um, <laughs> She's just an absolute enthusiast. So, yeah, she wasn't going to sit me down. Yeah, well, my dad would have, but he didn't know. So no one sat me down, and uh, I just went straight into the eye of the storm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, found a a treasure chest and escaped. (laughs) Yeah, it was a treasure chest. And was it Ken that suggested you get into ventriloquism in the first place. Yeah. yeah. It was years after that relationship. It wasn't a very long relationship, I have to say, because it was formative and then I ended up making a film about it. It seems like, you know, the biggest, longest thing. It was very short, really, a couple of months only. Oh, right, um, OK. Yeah, so years later I was at the RSC, uh, you know, dressed up and standing in the background and not saying much, and I, uh, I really missed him and his theatre company, everything he did, so I... I wrote to him to kind of ask him what's what's happening, and he was into ventriloquism by that stage, and he said, "We won't do this." So, um, and he sent me a puppet that arrived at the stage door and a teach yourself ventriloquism kit. So, it was just an accident. I mean, he did go for it with a little bit. He did say, "You're like a clown who doesn't want to wear the nose, so this will be perfect for you." So that was good that he saw that. It would appeal to me, but it didn't initially. And he was trying to teach a whole of London ventriloquism. It just wasn't sticking. <laughs> and then I, I don't know. How did you interpret that comment that you were like a clown who didn't want to wear the nose? Not sure. I'm not sure because I saw at it a little bit. Because I, I do like wearing the nose. I mean, I, I wasn't someone who wants to be like, who knows how to be funny by themselves without a character. It's, it was true. It's very true. And he was very right. So it was suddenly I was holding the right kind of pen, like a left-handed pen or whatever. It's like, oh, oh, right, this will work. And did you find it quite easy? Did you pick it up? There's a moment in the film, which I want to ask you about, Her Master's Voice, which you directed and which came out in 2012. And it is Mm -hmm. just great. It's such a great film. And... There's a moment in the film where there's an amazing demonstration of bifurcating, which, uh, well, explain what the word is. Bifurcation, I think it's when your lips do one thing, but you say something else. So it's not like a delay, like people do that sort of joke, like a delayed film where you you speak and then there's a gap. Oh, I don't know what that is. It's more like you're simultaneously using your lips to make the shapes to say one sentence, but you actually 
behind your lips at the back of the throat, you're saying something completely different. So it's quite spooky when it's done well. Right. Very spooky when it's done well. Yeah, yeah. What's the technique to it? You've got to plan the sentence you're going to say, and then you've got to get your lips ready to say a different sentence. So everything in ventriloquism is, is obviously not using the lips, and you've formed substitute lips using the back of your tongue and your soft palate, and that's where you're making the sounds. In theory, you should definitely be able to do it if you're a ventriloquist. You should definitely be able to say something with your lips, but say something else with the back of your throat. But you have that problem of your brain thinking the thing with your face that you're saying and disassociating that is the real challenge. And how do you start then when you're doing ventriloquism? Do you start by just trying to make random abstract noises from different parts of your face and mouth and throat? Or how does it work? Well, you've got... 20 of the 26 letters of the alphabet you can say without moving your lips, no trouble at all, they're not, they're not useful for those. But B, P, V, M, G, I can't, I've forgotten them now. Th, I think, is hard as well. You just have substitutes. So B is mostly a G sound, but you're thinking B whilst you're saying G. And then over time, something happens in the back of your throat and it just gets better at it. Yeah. And parrots are a great, uh, a great source of inspiration because they've only got those little beaky tongues and no lips and they can do everything. Well, I don't know what, they have a valve. I mean, so it's just how you control the air passing through that tongue and the soft palate. You kind of have to, when you say guh, if you if you do a, like a lazy gur and you let the air build up a bit before you let the gur sound out, it transforms it into a burr, a laboured gur. I mean, you're very good. I was watching it. You, you said that your ventriloquism skills have slipped a bit, but I was watching a video of you from, well, it was posted last year and it was excellent. And there's absolutely no gottle of gear going on. Oh, that's good. But I think the way I was taught by Ken was, ah, never mind getting your B right before you go on stage. No one cares, you know. It's much more fun if your puppet's funny and you're saying good things. Like, that's the least important thing about ventriloquism is your B sound, you know. Yeah. Don't stay practicing in front of the mirror until you say, buh, just get out there and start going. People will gladly enjoy the guz from a funny puppet. Anyway, it doesn't matter at all. And then how quickly did you start sort of playing around with the form? Because you've become sort of well-known for doing things that I hadn't seen other ventriloquists doing. Um, I suppose the most notable of those would be putting the puppet away at certain points, putting monkey back in the bag, and then just withdrawing your arm and then carrying on as if monkey is naked and... The, and the puppet is just your arm. And it's a sort of deconstruction of the whole thing that's very intriguing and unsettling. And then the other uh, innovation, correct me if I'm wrong, is when you strap on the big remote control mouth onto members of the audience that you get up on stage. Yeah. So how quickly did those creep in? The mask that I put on... Uh, audience members' faces. That I didn't design that. Those have been around and ventriloquists used them. And Ron Lucas was the first ventriloquist to use those. And he did a very funny act with them. But I think what um, 
excited me most about them was that you could create a an act live just using the people in the room and a few scant details of their lives and just improvise a whole show all with members of the audience so I'm responsible for taking it to that next level although it started quite carefully I had a stooge in the audience and I'd get that you know I'd pay someone to come every night and do it and then one night the stooge couldn't come so I got somebody real and god it was a lot funnier with someone real and then I thought oh I'll chance another real one tomorrow and then it was much funnier and then I thought oh this is way the best way to go I'll just use only audience and we'll just make it all up and so that's what the that's what the shows I've been doing ever since have been because they continue to surprise me and it feels like, oh, I've managed to break through to a format that I can just keep doing for years because it's different every time. That's the thing I miss the most now with this bloody pandemic is that you can't do such like close shows where the audience just experiences a one unique yeah. night and then they all, as they file out, they've all had a shared experience that was bespoke to them and all that. That's, that feels like a real sadness. You can't really, you can't do that on Zoom. Yes, and then with the naked monkey, mm. when did that start happening? Did you because that that was a really great flourish of kind of deconstructionist meta ventriloquism that I hadn't seen before? Yeah, well, I had um when I started out, it was I was like called a special act, and uh, a lot of the stand-ups would suggest that I had it easy because I had a puppet like I was cheating or something because I had a funny puppet you've got a prop yeah I got a prop and um that lingers to this day like I'm cheating it really does I mean I kind of believe that deep down that I'm cheating still because there's a, like a purest thing about stand-up that you think it's just you know it's, it's very <laughs> it's very adept um and so at the time Daniel Kitts, I was gigging a lot with Daniel Kitson when I first started out, and it was kind of a response to him. He said, what you do is a very good example of what I don't like. Um, you should just get up there and say the thing. And uh, I kind of went away thinking, God damn it, how am I going to show it's me or that I am saying the thing? So I think that, I, that deconstructive was actually, I think that was in response to, to Kitson saying that. Seems to, uh, came up with it the same week. When he says you should just say the thing, just talk to them. You know, right? Just okay. Get uh, get behind the mic and talk to them. All this extra fuss, you know, that you're doing with the puppet. You could just go up and talk to them. But I think for all these years I've been doing it, I realise that there is something different about what I do from just going up and talking. I mean, I really feel like that monkey has access to a subconscious thing. I mean. God, I'm, I'm in, I have a therapist. I've had a therapist now for about three years. And sometimes she has to ask me what would monkey say. If she can sort of tell I'm lying or I'm blocking something or I'm not really. She says, well, you know, what would monkey say? And then I'm like, oh, my God, you're right. I'm lying. This is nonsense. Yes, I can hear monkey's voice and he's telling you that I did it on purpose. I didn't even say, you know. Yeah. So it, he, it does seem... It does seem like there's a good access to a subconscious level of thoughts that that, that that tool has brought about. I don't know what came first. Can't have just been there all along and then I just picked Monkey up and suddenly it spoke. But maybe, I don't know. There's a bit in the film, her master's voice, 
where there's a, a bit of audio of Ken Campbell talking to you, or in fact, talking to you being the monkey. Mm. He quotes Friedrich Schiller, 18th yeah. century German poet and philosopher. Yeah. And um, he says, there's a, a Schiller said, there's a watcher at the gate of the mind. And it's the watcher that stops you being creative because creation and insanity are almost the same thing. Mm. And that's a great way of looking at it. And what you do with the monkey is you're kind of trying to shut down the watcher at the gate or you're trying to sort of externalize it somehow. Yeah, an unaccountable force that isn't me. Yeah. You can sneak past the gatekeeper of the mind. Yeah. That's when it's working at its best is when you, you achieve that. There's another moment. I mean, it's such a great... Were you happy with the movie when it came out? I mean, it, it, it seemed to do very well. Yes, I was very happy because I, I made it with my own money very cheaply and um, then managed to sell it to the BBC after I'd made it, which was, yeah, it's a business model I've been wanting to replicate ever since. It was a nice freeing way to do it. I was delighted, yeah. Where can people see it now? I think it's on Amazon now and um, it's on Prime, yeah. There's many, many really memorable and and quite sort of uh, jarringly strange and honest moments in the whole thing where you're, where you're dancing around with the whole artificiality of what you do and making a film and being a ventriloquist and saying honest things via these puppets and... I mean, there's one one moment that sticks out. I hope this isn't too much of a spoiler. But towards the end of the film, you kill the monkey. Because you begin the film by saying, I feel as if maybe I'm reaching the end of this ventriloquism caper that we're on, you know, and maybe I won't yeah. be doing too much more ventriloquism. So you go out to Kentucky to this big sort of ventriloquist's festival slash museum slash i don't know what is it yeah it's a convention and museum of uh, puppets of dead ventriloquists yeah there you go and you go and contribute one of the uh, puppets that ken bequeathed you that you pick up at the beginning of the film and you go and travel to kentucky but you also take monkey but at the end of the film you kill monkey you get monkey run over by a car and you're in a car park of a motel yeah. And you deliberately drop the monkey in front of the car. <laughs> and this is all sort of staged, right? It's not accidental. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, monkey wants me to experience what a life would be like without him. Right. And so you'd arranged with the people in the car that they would run over yeah, monkey. Yeah, drop me under the car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could you just run over my monkey? Yes, just managed to grab someone and say, "Can you? would you mind just throwing your car over this monkey? It's a, it's a sort of elderly couple, and when they do run over the monkey, you really lose your shit, and you start screaming and crying, and you look genuinely distressed. <laughs> and by that point in the film, it feels as if you probably were genuinely distressed. Were you? Uh-huh. I don't know. I think it's acting, actually. I mean, I would be distressed. That's not to say I wouldn't be distressed, but I wasn't, you know, no. I mean, I was act I was sort of channeling uh, some distress for the sake of it. Yeah. I'm very glad it seemed um, convincing. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, when, when I first started out with um, Monkey and I'd only just got a handle on it and thought, oh, I can do gigs and I can make my own money and this is the freedom I've been looking for, 
I got a gig in Austria and uh, they and I lost him on the plane. And I t- and he didn't turn up in Austria and I was there to do this gig and I couldn't do the gig. And I was bereft and I did cry in the airport in Austria because I didn't know where I would find another one. They were like discontinued and I thought we'd gone forever and, you know, it was back, I don't know, eBay must have existed, but it didn't occur to me that I would find one on eBay back then. We're talking 2000 or something. So, yeah, I was... I'm very capable of crying at the thought of losing monkey completely. You know, if you took all of them away, I've got several, burnt them all. Yeah, I'd be upset. My note when I watched it that I wrote down here was, this is a vivid, unsettling portrait of madness. (laughs) (laughs) It is design, I have to say. I mean, I, I very much flirt with that idea of myself being mad and layered and all that stuff. I, I do. I use that. I use that a bit much to the point where people then who are, um, you know, therapists or whatever, or just people who think they can help me will come and sort of say, are you okay? Or, you know, I I watched your film or I watched your show and it looks like you're really struggling. You know, I I think, no, it's design. I'm using that and I'm really celebrating that. Um, I am actually okay but you can't say that without seeming like you're not but certainly the stuff i've put out on stage is is all design it's not like oh dear she's really lost it especially my in therapy tapes online god people really think those are real and i'm glad of it i think i'm quite glad that people think they're real what are you doing in those for people that haven't seen them they're improvised therapy sessions with Adam Megiddo, who's a very good improviser, playing the therapist. And so I, I turn up with Monkey for therapy, saying I've got this sidekick that's in control of my life and I can't, you know, can't live life and help. And so we did, we improvised all these sessions, um, and they sort of feel near the knuckle. They feel like what my life would be like if I was really only with a monkey all the time. Um, and, yeah, I mean, people in the comments section, they're very, this is sick, this shouldn't be comedy, this is, you know, this, she needs help, you know, there's all that. There's so many of those comments, and I read them and think, oh, I've got to put that person straight, I'm fine, and then think, no, no, actually, it's probably what you were aiming for, is that grey area, so just leave it out there. Also, it might well be that you're in denial, and you are very ill. I am ill, yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who isn't. I don't seem to be more ill than everyone else. There you go. That is a very good point. One final question before we wrap things up. Okay. I hope you don't mind me asking about your dad. Okay. He is an actor I always admired. And one of the reasons I really liked him was that he was in a film with David Bowie called Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, uh, which came out in 1983, directed by Nagisa Oshima. 
That was a big formative experience for me because I'd known about Bowie for a couple of years, but 1983 was when me and my sister were just obsessed by him and we had posters all over our walls and we went to see that movie and he just looked so gorgeous in it. Was that Let's Dance, that era? Yes, exactly, exactly. Let's Dance had come out earlier that year Mm -hmm. and I guess, when was that movie shot then? End of 82 or...? It must have been about, uh, yeah, yeah, 82, I think you're right. And yes, Bowie had um, bleach blonde hair and he was looking very beautiful. Mm-hmm. And do you remember much about that time? Did you, you go and visit your dad on set even? I did. I did. And I did meet David Bowie. And I was obsessed. I mean, I was obsessed. And I was probably nine or eight And I thought I would marry him. You know, I thought, I've met him. I've met the man I'll marry when I was eight. And it's David Bowie. And uh, Wow, that's very young to be into Bowie. uh, Yeah, but I mean, it's very easy to be into Bowie. He was a very exciting person. I had already kind of, I think my parents were saying, we're going to be going to film this thing and David Bowie's in it and you should find out who David Bowie is, you know, and played me the music and then I met him and yeah, it was an obsession that went on for ages and then I used to be like at school I would be jealous if anyone listened to David Bowie albums and tell them they couldn't, you know, like he was mine. It was really <laughs> weird. Um yeah. And uh he came to my birthday party and a couple of things like that. Oh my god. Yeah. How old were you? I guess 9 or 10 or something. He came to your ninth birthday party. I think so, yeah. Or my 10th, I don't know. But my parents must have wangled this. I mean, how, they, how what? I don't know. They were quite good friends, I think. That is um, amazing. During the filming, but they're very different. Did he sing, happy birthday <laughs> to you, happy birthday to you? That's not a very good impression of him singing happy I birthday. I mean, if I could remember anything he said, I can't remember anything he said because I was in just a fog of love whenever I was near him and he would... I do remember him saying, you like my shoes. I like your shoes. And I, I, oh God, I was so confused looking down at my very boring little shoes, thinking, oh, wow, he likes these. <laughs> I don't know, just making conversation. <laughs> I remember a woman coming over to him in a restaurant and kissing him, like full on the mouth. And then she went away and he kind of went, hey. And she turned around and he said, I didn't quite catch that. And then he winked at her. I remember witnessing that age and I going, oh, oh my God, so cool. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, man. Old school, sexy interaction with strangers. Yeah, really old school. I mean, it was kind of, yeah. What a weird piece of behavior. Anyway, I'm very lucky to have met him, and but it's a very early memory and I didn't get to meet him again kind of later when I would have understood it more. Yeah. It's just a child memory of this, like, golden human. Where were they shooting? Where was the location for that movie? They were shooting in Rarotonga, an island in the South China Seas somewhere. Yeah, the whole thing's a bit like a dream. I can't kind of... I can't locate it amongst my other memories. It doesn't connect with anything. It's just all palm trees and David Bowie, and this is crazy. There was one night where we went to a cinema... That had goats and chickens and everything running around. And it was very like a farm kind of cinema. And I was ill. And I was ill. And we had to stop the car on the way home. 
and he was there and I had to throw up in front of him. It was embarrassing. Spoiled my spoiled my plan to become his wife. <laughs> Aged nine. Aww. Yeah, I lost my cool. <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> the last time I saw you you said you said that I asked you about it before and you said that you threw up on his shoes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, they were near enough. On his dancing shoes. Oh, his dancing shoes. Oh, God. David Bowie's feet. <laughs> Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Continue. Hey, welcome back, Podcats. I was talking with Nina Conti before the break there, and I'm very grateful indeed to Nina for giving up her time to chat with me. There's a link in the description to various bits and pieces of Nina-related stuff. I'm not going to go on too much today because it is currently, uh, I would say, grody weather-wise. You'll be relieved to hear that my walking boots are doing all right, still cosy. So how are you doing, podcats? Not too bad, I hope. I'm looking forward to a, a good result that everyone can get behind in the American election. I'm sure that's all going to go very smoothly. And no doubt we'll start seeing some positive news about the pandemic very shortly. What do you think, Rose? I did a poo on the landing this morning. Did you find it? Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. That was great. Now, before I go today, here is a great rhyme, mnemonic, whatever you want to call it for you. Remember, remember, the 5th of November, Richard Herring's book, The Problem with Men is being published. He sent me a copy, and I I loved it. One of the reasons I loved it is because it's not very long, and so I read it quite quickly. (laughs) And that's my favourite kind of book. But it is very funny, as you would expect. I'll read you the blurb on Richard's website. For the past decade, Richard Herring has been answering sexist trolls on International Women's Day when they ask... When is International Men's Day? In the mistaken belief, there isn't one. If only the trolls, should I say trolls or trolls? I'm going to say trolls. Had learned to use Google 
they would realize that there is an International Men's Day. It's on November the 19th. In The Problem with Men, Richard expands on his Twitter discussions and tackles some of the big questions surrounding the problems of toxic masculinity for women, but also for men, including should men fear feminism? Is society sexist against men? Could you win a point against Serena Williams? Spoiler, the answer to all of these is no. With Richard's signature humour and insight, The Problem with Men is a book for anyone striving for an equal society all year round. I agree. Also, it's funny, and even if you are a slightly thin-skinned and defensive male man, and hey, look, we've all been there, I think you'll enjoy this. It's not a book designed to wind you up. Instead, I think it's more designed to just help everyone relax. That's the way I read it. I relaxed and I laughed. So anyway, I recommend The Problem With Men. There's an audiobook version as well, released on the 5th of November. I'll put a link to Richard's website where you can find out more and buy a copy in the description of this podcast. All right, listen, podcasts. Rosie has buggered off home because she's not enjoying the weather out here and I sympathise. I'm going to head back. Thank you very much indeed once again to Nina Conti for making time to talk to me. Thanks very much to Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for production support, to Emma Corsham for additional editing. Thanks to Helen Green, who does the artwork for the podcast. Thanks to Acast for their continued help and support. Thanks most especially to you for listening and continuing to be encouraging about the podcast and uh, open-minded forgiving all the stuff i appreciate it until next time we share the same our old space i wish you all the best i gift you a hug and i want you to know for what it's worth well i love you bye I'm